Concluding a brief series of sermons on Jonah, we come through the third chapter, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Again, O oh God, this morning we've placed our lives in front of your open word, asking that you will do what only your spirit can do, which is to speak it deep into our hearts. Be gracious to our seeking of such grace. In the name of Christ, amen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up and go to Nineveh. When I am in conversations with people who are trying to discern call, I find that they're frequently worried about missing it. Well, after three days in the belly of a great fish, Jonah would say to you, don't worry about that. If God wants you to go to Nineveh, you're going to end up there. The reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh is that it was Israel's great enemy. The people there were unrighteous, even evil, we're told. They had oppressed Israel for a long time severely. What Jonah was actually hoping was that God would destroy Israel's enemy. The last thing he wanted was for them to repent and to be in a good relationship with the Lord. But he knew he had to follow his calling, and so he goes to Nineveh and does some preaching. We're only given one line of the sermon, and the way the text is written, it may have been the whole sermon. Notice this sermon doesn't have a lot of pastoral empathy for the people in the pews. There are no pews. Jonah is preaching in the streets. There's no helpful illustrations or narrative. There's no winsome humor. There's not even an altar call or an invitation to repent. There's just this one line of judgment. 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Notice the word overthrown. It's it's almost a military term, isn't it? Our enemies will be overthrown. Well, even after that sermon, the people of Nineveh repented, beginning with the king. Really? 
I've knocked myself out to write sermons. I've never had the kind of response <laughs> that Jonah gets with this one severe line. 40 days more, Nineveh will be overthrown, and the whole city repents. When I was at graduate school at the University of Chicago, a question began to emerge among some of the students and professors as to why it is that judgmental churches seem to grow. So we did what academics do when we're confused, we set up a panel discussion. <laughs> there was a historian on the panel who described how in the history of the country there have been episodic periods of revival and renewal that break out whenever society is not working well for people, and we may be in one of those seasons now. There was a theologian on the panel who helpfully pointed out that fundamentalists are not the only people who use judgment, and that progressives also are quick to judge. It's just a different target. They're judging social systems. But we all are involved in judgmental preaching. There was a biblical scholar who worked through some passages. The person I found most fascinating on the panel was a psychologist who said that people are drawn to judgmental preachers because they think that the warnings of calamity are addressed not to themselves, but to somebody they don't like. And they would just as soon have God blow a little judgment down on that person. There will eventually be justice. I was fascinated by all of this. But I had been a pastor for a number of years before I went to grad school, and I had a theory of my own. And my theory is people are drawn to judgmental preaching because it's what they know best. Judgment is what we know best. Judgment's what we've known our whole lives. We were judged by our parents when we were children and by our children when we became parents. We're judged by teachers, by coaches, by supervisors, by our friends, our family, and we are judged most severely of all by the person who keeps showing up in the mirror. We know what we've done and left undone. So yes, we'll join all the other people on the streets of Nineveh and we'll say, amen, Jonah, you preach it. It sounds right to me. It's sad, but true. In my years of pastoral ministry, I was often asked why I don't do more preaching about judgment. What these people are looking for is what I've come to call the bad dog sermon, where the preacher stands in a pulpit like this, shakes her or his finger, and essentially says, you bad dogs, look what you've done. Don't do that in here. Take that outside. <laughs> and the amazing thing is how much people like the bad dog sermon. They sit in the pews looking like scolded golden retrievers, and they think, you're right, I did it again. Well, I don't give the bad dog sermon because I don't think anybody needs to be convinced that they're bad dogs. We're not confused about that. What we're confused about is what can be done. What we're completely confused about is this notion of the grace of God. 
and the better you are doing at life, and the clearer you are about your rights, the more confusing grace becomes. Well, later in the text, we're told that when God saw that the people had repented and had turned to God, God turned to them. In fact, the text actually says God changed his mind about the calamity he would bring upon them. Really? Can God's mind be changed? That has frightening implications if we take it out of context. My recommendation is don't take it out of context. (laughs) Here, it is simply making the case that God can be moved. And nothing moves God like a people who are appealing to grace. But Jonah would hear none of this. He wanted nothing to do with it. And in his anger, he said to the Lord, this is what I was worried about. This is why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning, because I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. Then in a moment of adolescent rage, he says, if this is the way you're gonna treat me, just go ahead and kill me, get it over with. I've always imagined God in heaven rolling holy eyes saying, Really, Jonah, <laughs> kill you? But, but maybe, maybe there's something more to this than that. Maybe when revival broke out in Nineveh, something cherished and Jonah died. Like all of us, his life had been built around core convictions. And Jonah's core convictions included a belief that God rewards the righteous, that God punishes the unrighteous and the evil, and that God likes Israel best. And none of those convictions could stand up under the weightiness of God's grace. And something in him died. And maybe that's the point of the call to Jonah. Maybe it wasn't just the Ninevites who needed to be converted. Wherever it is that God calls you to go, whatever it is that God calls you to do, be clear that the calling is for your conversion as well. The old prophet who was so certain that he was right so careful to follow the rules, so worried about the injustice of God's grace. That's what had to die. And maybe it has to die in all of us. Why would you want to spend your life struggling to be good enough and to be right when you could live it beholding the wild grace of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.